You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, I'm finding it's a little hard for me to talk about justice. Um, I mean, part of that is because I've, I know I have a lot to learn. And uh, I think another part of that is sometimes on the subject I just feel stuck, like stuck. Have you ever had that experience where uh, in the middle of the night you kind of wake up and you feel paralyzed? Like you, your mind is awake, but your body is not awake. You can't move your hand or, or uh, roll over or something like that. That's kind of how I feel about justice in a way. And, and it, it shows to me that, you know, that you, can, you can dream the dream, but living the reality, embodying it is kind of another thing. And I, and I think another reason why I feel stuck, and, and maybe you do too on this one, is that you can dream the dream alone, but you can only live the reality with others. Justice. There's a thing called emergent property. Those of you who are philosophers or uh, do systems engineering know about emergent properties. Uh, an emergent property is a property that obtains over a complex system. It's not something that belongs to any one thing. So, you know, your brain, your mind is an emergent property. Um, it's, not, it's not a property of any of the one's little cells in this complex thing in your brain, but your mind is, is kind of something that emerges from that. A traffic jam is an emergent property. You can, one car can't have a traffic jam, right? Uh, an anthill. The collaboration is an emergent property. So in the same way, a justice is an emergent property. You cannot experience it alone, see. Now, what we're learning is that justice is rooted in God's heart, but it takes a community to make that heart visible. So let's look at a, a passage in the Old Testament this morning. This is where God gave instructions for his people to be able to make God's heart visible in community. Turn to Leviticus chapter 25, deep, deep, deep Old Testament. Grab the black book in front of you and turn to page 98, please. And if you're able, I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's word aloud together. Leviticus 25, verses 8 through 12. What you're going to see here is God is waking up his people, but not only their minds, but his body. And uh, he's calling them to a communal practice. You're going to see it begins with a trumpet. Let's read Leviticus 25, verse 8. When, by the way, when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud, on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land, and you shall hallow the fiftieth year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property, and every one of you to your family. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. 
See, the Jubilee is a way that God used in order to address a whole system of injustice. Now, some of you are counselors and therapists, and, and you know family system theory. In family system theory, there's a concept called the identified patient. In a family, the person who appears to be sickest is not necessarily the problem in the family, just the person manifesting the problem in the family system. Now, if you think of a society as a system, it's really easy when that society starts to break down and become dysfunctional to look at one person and say, that person is the problem. But family system says, you never have one person who's the problem by themselves. People always contribute uh, to the problem. And so today, you know, we have to be really careful and go, you know, the rascal across the street or the rascal, you know, in the palace, they're the problem. If we could only change that, that's not the way families work. That's not the way community works. It's the whole system. What I love about this passage, nothing like it in the ancient or modern world, it was a practice that God gave Israel to address the system, no matter who the king was. So, I'd like to argue today that the Jubilee in ancient Israel was a communal practice that pointed to the presence, the promise of God's presence. Let me say that again. The Jubilee was a communal practice that pointed to the promise of God's presence. Let's look briefly at the three elements of the Jubilee, and then I want to wind back and share some implications for modern people today. First of all, three elements of the Jubilee the first is practice. It was a practice, okay? Every 50 years, basically, just to boil it down, God said what you're going to do is you're going to blow a trumpet and three things are going to happen. You're going to free any slave, you're going to release any debt, and you're going to all go back to the land that I gave you when Joshua first came uh, with God's people into Israel. The, that when they did that, God marked out ancestral plots for every tribe and the families within them. And, and on the 50th year, everybody's going to go back to those places as a family to experience the promised land as God intended. This is interesting. There's a recognition in this that inequalities, inequities are kind of inevitable in a social system. That, that over time they creep in despite anybody's good intentions. And so this passage, Leviticus 25, by the way, you've got to read the whole chapter really to understand what's going on here, describes three stages of poverty that will exacerbate inequality in any society. And the first in their society was you got a financial crisis that hits. What do you do first? You sell land. That's what they would do in Israel. If that didn't uh, uh, solve your problem, the next thing you would do is you would take out a loan and debt. If, if, if you couldn't get back on your feet after doing that, the, the next thing you do is you would, you would sell away your freedom, become an indentured servant or a slave. And, th and this is happening over time in, in Israel. Some people are, are losing power and getting uh, less and less power, powerful uh, poor, as they get more poor. On the other hand, conversely, there's a group of people who are acquiring larger and larger tracts of land, who are gaining uh, wealth, and who are uh, gaining power even over other people as they become slaveholders. Now, there, there's a lot that's wrong with that, but the real problem isn't so much from the perspective of Leviticus, Leviticus 25. It isn't that there is an uh, inequality of wealth 
But there's, there's emerging an inequality of opportunity. See, that, that you can't make choices anymore to work your way back. And so this practice every 50 years is a reset uh, for opportunity. This, this practice of, of taking everybody back to their ancestral lands gives in every generation an opportunity for every family or every individual to pop right back out to a place of opportunity. That's pretty cool when you think about it. That's the practice. Now, secondly, the, the, the second element of this is presence. And it's really about God's presence. And this is represented by the horn. The word jubilee just literally means ram's horn. That's what the word means. Yobel is the Hebrew. It was a special horn. It was a ram's horn. And uh, it signified God's presence whenever it was used. The, the word yobel occurs in three different contexts. First, in the this mostly it's in, in Leviticus 25, a couple of other places that make reference to the jubilee. We get that word. The other two places, on Mount Sinai, when God comes graciously to claim Israel as his people, to bind them in his covenant love, then God descends, we read, on uh, Mount Sinai, and they blow the trumpet. There's that sound, because it's God's presence. And likewise, when God's people are coming into the promised land and they come to Jericho, uh, remember what Joshua orders? that All the priests are to carry the Yobel, they're to, to blow the horn uh, around the walls of Jericho. Now, what's that going on there? It's not to induce chaos or to depress them with smooth jazz, but rather to announce God's presence. Okay, that's... So, so jubilee, we think of it oftentimes as the word for joy because we have the word jubilation that comes from it. But it, in its Hebrew setting, it doesn't mean joy initially. It means horn. Now, <clears throat> this is important because I would have thought that the reason there's joy on the jubilee is because poor people are getting stuff. They're, they're getting stuff that's been, that they've lost back, and so they're happy. But if that were the case, you would, at the same time, conversely, have wealthy people who are losing stuff, and I don't think they'd be joyful if that were what it's about. They would be experiencing loss and mourning, and they'd be angry. There'd be resentment, right? That's not what's going on. The, the horn isn't because of joy initially. It's because of God's presence, see? And when God is present, both rich and poor are rejoicing because this is a God of abundance, and that's what's happening here. So, secondly, there's a presence element here. But then the third element is, is promise. It's this promise in the Jubilee that God will redeem every loss, both for the rich and for the poor. And it's, this promise is based on the promise and the practice of the kinsman redeemer in ancient Israel. The kinsman redeemer was this in this, this practice where a family member could see somebody else who had experienced loss and could acknowledge a family bond with them and could redeem them by buying back their situation at their own expense and restoring them. That's what a kindred, kinsman redeemer was. And that seems to be what's going on here. A couple things about the promise, two things. First, it's a communal promise. Uh, it's a communal promise. It's a family promise. Notice verse 25 says this. If any one of your kin falls into difficulty, if any one of your kin, your family, falls into difficulty, of course, you're going to redeem them in that situation. 
And uh, we see this refrain four times in this chapter. Verse 25, 35, 39, 47. If any one of your kin falls into difficulty. So it's a communal process. You've got you to have kin, right? And then the second aspect of it is it's a comprehensive promise. I mean, notice that this isn't just a spiritual reality. Yes, you blow the horn on the day of atonement, which is about forgiveness before God. But the reason you, you do that on that day is to, to, by implication, God's communicating that your experience of God's forgiveness spiritually becomes a material experience that everybody in the land can see, touch, and feel. So notice how comprehensive this promise is. Verse 5 and verse 11 it says it's a promise for the land. The land gets to rest. This is what we would call environmental justice. Notice verse 10, there's a promise for families that are being restored. This is what we would call social justice. Notice in verse 43, 46, 53, there are regulations on labor. You shall not rule over people with harshness. This is what we would call economic justice. Physically, spiritually, it's holistic. So what I'm suggesting is that what we have here, what they had there, is a communal practice that pointed to the promise of God's presence. Now, this is a little complicated. Thank you for bearing with me through all of that. If you haven't followed that, let me just get you back up to 30,000 feet. The point of this passage is God wants you to be free. God wants you to be free. That's his heart for you and for the world. He wants you to be free in every way. Spiritually, yes, he wants you to be free before him, a loving God. Intellectually, he wants you free in your mind, not captive to false truths about yourself and the world. He wants to liberate our minds. Socially, he wants you free in your relationships, people you know that you don't know. Economically, he wants you free with respect to your money, the money that you have and the money that you don't have. He wants you to be free. Physically, he wants you to be free in your body, fully healthy and capable in the environment around you. God wants you to be free. And the Jubilee is God's way of showing that for his people Israel. But it's not just that he wants you to be free. He wants everybody and everything to be free. And God calls a community to be, join him as liberators. Okay, but here's the question. How do we do this? We're not just, you know, in the, first of all, you can't just apply the Jubilee today, right? I mean, it's, it, it, this applies in a very specific type, type of a culture. These are subsistence farmers. They're in a theocracy. Okay, we're not. In, a, in, in the modern West, how would we respond faithfully to this passage? And I want to suggest to you uh, that we take some advice from a UVA professor uh, named James Davison Hunter has written a book called To Change the World. And his thesis is that what, what we ought to focus on as followers of Jesus is what he calls in two words, faithful presence. Faithful presence. I won't unpack Hunter's argument there, but I want to just take his phrase, faithful presence, in the light of the Jubilee and flip our argument on its head. If the Jubilee was a communal practice that pointed to the promise of God's presence, I want to suggest that it's our presence that points to the promise of the Jubilee practice. It's our presence that points to the promise of the Jubilee practice. Now, let me illustrate that with a story first. I hope you're joining me in reading Severe, I mean, Just Mercy uh, by, by Brian Stevenson. Just Mercy. Brian Stevenson is an African-American Harvard-trained attorney who's given his life to defending prisoners on death row. And in his book, Just Mercy, which we're all reading, I hope, um, he's, he tells a story about a woman he calls, or she calls herself, a stone catcher. 
Has anyone gotten to that part yet? This is an African-American elderly woman with smooth skin. He says she's seated on a marble step in the courthouse, and uh, she's a grandmother. And she says, I'm a stone catcher. She takes that uh, name from a story in which Jesus became present to uh, injustice in his own day. There was a group of men who had uh, kind of framed a woman. She was uh, caught in adultery and unjustly uh, condemned to die. And Jesus diffuses the situation with his presence. He comes and he just sits at her feet and asks questions. To her, he says, I forgive you and uh, go and sin no more. And to them, he says, let any of you who is without sin throw the first stone. And kind of the whole scene dissipates along with the injustice. And she says, that's who I am. I'm a stone catcher. She says, I just come here to help people, here being the courthouse. This place is full of pain, so people need plenty of help around here. He's like, why, why, why do you do that? Well, she tells her story 15 years prior to his meeting her. She lost her beloved child, her grandson. He was murdered, and uh, so she came to the courthouse for the trial around that, hoping that, that that would bring some resolution to the pain she felt. But what happened was that the prosecutors charged the, the, the boys who did it as adults, and they were sent away to prison for life. And she, that just was even more devastating for her as she got to know these boys and see what happened to them. And, and she just never got over that, and so she just kept coming back to the courthouse week after week. She says, I just started letting anybody lean on me who needed it. I decided that I was supposed to be here to catch some of the stones that people cast at each other. Faithful presence. For her, she, she, she learns something, and she's a believer, follower of Jesus, that it's her presence that points to the promise of the Jubilee practice. Now, what does that look like for us? Let me just suggest three properties of this presence uh, for us here in Seattle. And the first is I want to note that, 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 that if we're going to take the Jubilee seriously, our presence has to be a communal presence, a communal presence. Cannot do this alone. Jubilee is about family, and it needs to be with us too. Frankly, I love that we live in Seattle where we're kind of politically activated and we care very much about justice, but I think one of the reasons why we seem stuck in Seattle is because in Seattle, we are tremendously isolated from one another. We are maximal individualists in the Seattle. It's Northern European culture, the backwoods culture. This is who we are. We're strong, but we're strong alone, or at least we try to be strong alone. And you cannot, here's family system theory again, you cannot change a relationship that you're not in. You become ineffective. You can't ever change a relationship that you're not in. We have to be embedded in a social network, a fabric of relational uh, experience in order to become change makers here in Seattle. It's communal practice. Did you know that today in America, 70% of our college students say they feel extremely lonely? 70%. Those of you who are uh, in the social sciences or do medical research are now telling us that your body is harmed by an experience of loneliness. In fact, brace yourself, being lonely is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. This is why the Bible says, and the very first thing, that the Bible says something's not right, it is not good for the man to be alone. And yet that's the way we try to live today in Seattle. 
UK, just, did you see the news story? They just appointed a minister for loneliness. It's a national post now in the United Kingdom because this is a national and I think an international disease, but we definitely have a good dose of it here in Seattle. You know what, if there were one thing that came out of my ministry, if, if, if I could only do one thing here at UPC as, as a pastor before the Lord takes me home, it would be this. It would be to help us become great at inviting our neighbors into family. Inviting our neighbors, irrespective of who they are, what they believe, how they live, inviting them into a loving, gracious, Christ-centered family where they can know they belong in community. That's why the small groups are so important. Small groups, big groups, missional community. We put a lot of time and effort into that. That's why I want every single one of us into a small group this Lent for just six weeks. It's because we're being called to a communal presence in our city. The second uh, element or property of this presence uh, is structural. I think the Jubilee pushes us towards a structural presence. The Jubilee is about systems, and it needs to be with us too. We've been focusing recently, of course, in the news on this horrible thing with Larry Nasser, And in all of that, one thing has come to the surface for me that I have not been able to shake. And it was an interview I heard uh, with ESPN reporter Howard Bryant. I think it was on Saturday uh, a week ago. Here's what, here's what Brian says. He says, this is a very American thing that we do. We find the bad guy, we take the bad guy, and we punish the bad guy. And then we leave every mechanism that allowed the bad guy to exist and that enabled the bad guy, we leave those things alone. And Bryant says he couldn't have done it by himself. And I love the fact that God understands this. The Israelites understood this, that every 50 years we do something radical to reset the whole system. Smith and Emerson in their groundbreaking work called Divided by Faith done a study on Christianity and racism in America. And and they say that some Christians, many Christians actually make the racialization of our society not better but worse. The unintended consequence, they argue, of our focus on individual conversion and personal piety as though the individual heart were all that matter sometimes makes us overlook the structural and systemic issues that have institutionalized racialization and oppression. And if we do that, we make it worse. Despite our best intentions, structures matter. That's why at the University of Washington, in so many ways, our ministry, which is multivalent, never involves reaching over a wall and just grabbing a disembodied soul and trying to pull them into the church as though that's all that mattered. No, we're called to give, pre- to give witness to Jesus in every dimension of life. Abraham Kuyper said, there's not one single inch over which our Lord who is sovereign does not say, this is mine. And that includes every academic discipline that's engaged here. And so we're lowering the wall and we're engaging in the life together with people uh, in the culture at University of Washington for the common good in all disciplines, the sciences, medicine, entertainment, the arts, all of these things, because we want to be present in those structures and give witness to change in a new way of life. The third uh, property of this presence is that it must be evangelical evangelical 
And I don't mean that in the traditional, uh, I mean in the modern political sense. I mean that in the biblical sense. You know, the the word evangelical, uh, it's not a Holy Spirit voter card with certain, it, it means announcing good news, to broadcast good news. That's what evangelical means in the historic and biblical sense. And that's what's going on in the Jubilee. Sound the trumpet, man, from sea to shining sea. Throughout the whole land, there's this comprehensive celebration, not just even human beings. All the whole of creation will rejoice. But the presence of God, good news is that you and I, when we run to the end of our capabilities of, of, uh, of actualizing justice in our society, know that that's not the end of the story. We're going to talk about more of that in two weeks. But what we know is that God himself has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ, and that's the gospel. And we get to participate in that reality with God as the major actor. And it's his work that guarantees the effectiveness of ours. Over time, there's very little evidence that Israel practiced the Jubilee, as we just read. But increasingly, it became a promise to them. Isaiah talks about the promise when he tries to speak hope into the 8th century B.C. when he says, the Spirit of the Lord has come upon me to, pro- to announce good news. You know, um, That promise was alive for them, and the promise is fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. I love the way Jesus creates justice in our lives. I got a letter from one of us this week. It's a a mom who wrote me to tell us it was her relationship with Jesus that motivated her uh, adoption of a child. And it's her relationship with Jesus that uh, helps her really understand how that adoption gives new meaning to her sense of justice in the world. This is a family that, it's a white family that has adopted a child with brown skin into the family. And she writes, my husband and I have always understood that commitment to justice is part of the call as followers of Jesus. But when this became a family matter through our adoption, it went from seeming somewhat optional to being absolutely critical. She says, I think some of our challenge to embrace justice is connected to our inability to embrace the reality of being the family of God. It's the shift so that when we look down the scale, we do not see the other, but we see brothers and sisters. Our little experience of adoption has had a fierce impact on how we think of justice. This whole new world has been open to us where we see and experience Jesus, his kingdom, his love, compassion, and generosity so much. Isn't that beautiful? The gospel of Jesus makes community possible, and it's community that makes the gospel of Jesus credible in the world today. Let me wrap up by drawing your mind back to Brian Stevenson. He's there in a courtroom, court house, uh, sitting next to an African-American grandmother. She's a stone catcher, telling her stories. They sit on the marble steps together. He remarks on how warm she is. She grabbed uh, his hands and started to massage his palms as they talked together. She looks him in the eye with a smile and she says, I think you're a stone catcher too. As though she were feeling for calluses or scars in his skin. Now what would, what would, what would, what would the city of Seattle be like if we were stone catchers also? Just the people in this room 
If this week we said, I want to go out there, be faithful presence for Jesus Christ, to start catching stones wherever hostility meets inability. What if we saw ourselves on assignment from God as part of the spirit of Jubilee, whether we're lawyers or grandmothers, whether we're coders or boot campers? Jesus began his ministry with this mindset. He began with the Jubilee. Let me close by reading to you the words of Luke chapter 4. Jesus, you know the story, went to his own hometown, Nazareth. It was the Sabbath, and he went, he went to worship in the synagogue, and they asked him to read. And when he was handed the scroll, he opened the scroll to Isaiah 61, and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke tells us, Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And I can't help but wonder, when he handed that scroll back to the attendant, whether the attendant made physical contact with your Savior and mine and felt his palms. Jesus, when he sits down, says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's blow the trumpet. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are a rescuer. You have a rescue mission and it's not enough just to rescue us, but to know our lives on this earth have meaning as we join together with your rescue operation. Let us sound the trumpet. Let us be filled with joy. And let us together go into this place, living our lives together with one another in such a way that what emerges is not just justice, but the heart of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.